Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am attempting Luke chapter 15 in this audio, the whole chapter. It will be a story of three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, otherwise known as the prodigal son. Last chapter, in the last part of chapter 14 of Luke, we talked about the cost of discipleship. Jesus is on his Perean ministry, which is very near the end of his life. He's heading toward Jerusalem in order to be crucified. We don't know exactly where he was, but somewhere in Perea, which is on the east side of the Jordan River, down there in the Jerusalem area, but across the Jordan River. So we start with verse 1, Luke 15. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to him. Now, in these three parables, we're going to be contrasted two groups of people. The first group is the tax collectors and sinners. These were Jewish people who were looked down upon by Jewish society, especially the big shots in Jewish society, especially the scribes and the Pharisees. Tax collectors, of course, were evil people. We'll talk about them later, collecting taxes for the oppressive Roman Empire. And sinners could have been just any old run-of-the-mill sinner, people living dissolute life. Perhaps, or it could just be people who weren't keeping the traditions of the Pharisees. But I'm going to assume for the sake of the parable, because it it just makes the story better. We're going to assume that these were, you know, the prostitutes and the drunkards and the cheaters and all that kind of stuff. All right, let's talk about tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were hated intensely because they were hired by the Roman government. And what they would do, they would get every any profit they could by exceeding the Roman tax in the amount they collected. So they would collect what the Romans wanted, which I'm sure was not an unhealthy amount of money, and then they would just tack on to that another percentage, another amount to pay themselves. And there was no limit on that amount. The Roman government didn't limit the amount. So they would use unscrupulous means to extort money from the population. Now, nobody, including John the Baptist, when he was inveighing against this sort of thing, it, nobody ever said, Jesus never said that tax collecting was inherently sinful. Their goal was honesty within the profession of tax collecting. Now, that's important. I knew one time I knew a Christian who drove a beer truck. I, I didn't know him well. He was in a church that was sort of a, you know, a southern anti-beer church, if I can put it that way. And his fellow Christians are always making him feel guilty. Well, you know, there's nothing sinful about drinking a beer as long as you don't get drunk. Point number one. And point number two, if the man needed a job and he's driving a beer truck so other people can drink beer... That's, that's, nah, you can't blame him for that. He needs to be the best beer truck driver he could be. And I thought it was unfair for these Christians to, to make this man, who was a sincere Christian, who needed the money, needed the job to make him feel bad. I mean, you could do that to anybody. How about lawyers? Huh. I was asked to defend people who were growing pot. You know, and sometimes in order to do your job, you got to do things that are unpleasant. Of course, I got out of that job because I hated it. Now, maybe the beer truck driver finally felt bad about it too and got out, but... I'm always on, I always feel like I should be on the side of leniency when you start looking at situations like that because we live in a sinful world and sometimes you do things that aren't exactly like you want to. You want them to be. All right, now these, so let's summarize why people hated tax gatherers. One, they worked for Rome, who was the conqueror of Israel, and two, they demanded unreasonable payments. No wonder people hated them. Now how about the sinners, the other sinners? Well, let's just talk about tax collectors. They were outcasts of Jewish society. They could not serve as a witness in court. They could not be a judge. They were expelled from the synagogue. Their disgrace extended even to their families who could not attend the synagogue. Well, these people were outcasts, and you can imagine they were drawn by Christ's message of love and forgiveness. 
They didn't believe in Jesus and they didn't believe in Moses, but they believed in someone who could forgive them and love them. So this is what this parable is about. The father's inexhaustible love for nasty people. John Gill says that sinners were, quote, these sinners that Jesus is talking about here were notorious sinners, covetous, extortioners, oppressors of the poor, and very debauched persons. But as I pointed out earlier, a sinner could also merely be one who didn't keep the traditions of the Pharisees. But for the sake of the story here, I'm going to assume they're the nasty type of sinners, as John Gill says. Luke chapter 15, verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now the NIV translates that complaining as muttering. The Pharisees and scribes were muttering. They were complaining among themselves, in other words, but not openly, as the NIV study Bible note says. Now this word welcomes, prosdeketai, in the Greek, Adam Clark translates this as, this man, Jesus, receives them cordially, affectionately, takes them to his bosom, for so the word implies. In other words, it's a very hearty, intimate type welcome, and the Pharisees didn't like that. The Pharisees were condemning Jesus on the basis of a well-known principle. A man is known by the company he keeps. And that's not necessarily so. Sometimes you've got to go into a bar to save an alcoholic. Now, the Pharisees were quick to call these people sinners, tax collectors, and sinners. But the Pharisees didn't think they were sinners. Adam Clark says this, They cannot repent of the sins of a heathen, which they have not practiced, nor of the rapine of a tax gatherer, of which they have never been guilty. So what, this is what a typical legalist does. He points at sins that he hasn't committed and says, see there, I'm not a sinner, and fails to recognize that there are other sins that you can commit and that you've committed them. And the Pharisees, in other words, the Pharisees are your typical righteous, hypocritical SOBs that Jesus was constantly denouncing. Luke 15, 3-7. So he, this is Jesus, told them, the scribes and Pharisees, this parable, and also the sinners and the tax collectors who are also there so they both got to hear this and i'm going to point out to you here in these three parables these three lost parables is that sometimes jesus focuses on the on on god on the love of god and sometimes he focuses on the evil of the pharisees who don't who don't have compassion like god does so we'll look at this parable here. This is the parable of the lost sheep. What man among you, says Jesus, who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who don't need repentance. Let's start with the righteous people. Let's talk about outwardly righteous. Your cup is shiny on the outside, righteous. You keep the tradition of the Pharisees righteous. They don't need repentance. Actually, they thought they didn't know righteous. The NIV Study Bible says Jesus is being ironic here. The very ones who need to repent think they don't need to repent. In other words, it's not strictly true. When Jesus says that 99 righteous people who don't need repentance, he's not strict, he's being sarcastic there. They do need repentance, but he's saying who don't think they need repentance. He's being a little ironic here. That's, we need to point that out because, yes, righteous people, righteous in their own eyes, self-righteous people do need to repent. All right, so let's look at this lost sheep. Notice that when the lost sheep was found, the shepherd of the sheep, and that would be Jesus or God the Father, 
Notice that he rejoices. But what about the Pharisees? Do they rejoice because a lost sheep has come in? No. They looked at tax gatherers and sinners, and all they could see is that they were tax gatherers and sinners, and the thought of their repenting never crossed their mind. They didn't believe in redemption and forgiveness for sins. They could care less whether sinners repented or not. They were too busy hating them. Jesus taught the same thing in another passage, not in a parallel passage, but on another occasion, Matthew 18, 12 through 14. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the ninety-nine on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, I assure you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Matthew adds a little phrase here. It's not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. That immediately raises theological questions. You say, oh, God doesn't want anybody to perish. Well, then that means unlimited atonement, definite atonement is not scriptural. Well, who is one of these little ones that it's not the will of God the Father in heaven to perish? It's the one lost sheep that was found. That's who he's referring to. He's not referring to the 99 on the hillside that didn't go astray. I mean, after all, those were Pharisees, and by golly, they did perish, not only physically in AD 70 when the kingdom was come down, but, you know, assuming they didn't repent, which most of them didn't, they crucified Jesus. They're in hell now because of what they did. They didn't repent, so you can't say it's not the will of your Father in heaven that none of the 99 perished. But that's off the subject here. Let's get back to the main point, which is that we should be happy when sinful people repent. We shouldn't point at their sin and say, oh, how terrible they are. Man, if a homosexual or a alcoholic or an adulterer or a Democrat, oh, I shouldn't have said that, excuse me, an antichrist, progressive liberal, not all Democrats are like that, of course, but people who hate Jesus, if they repent, we ought to be doggone happy about it, real happy. Now, here's another interesting point pointed out by John Gill. He says, these sheep are lost. Christ, here's a quote from Gill, Christ finds his sheep in a most desolate one, in a pit, desolate condition, I think Gill means, in a pit, in the mire and clay of nature, in the paw of the roaring lion, Satan. Yes, that's where all of us are when we're caught in sin. But Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Jesus is the good shepherd who goes out and looks for the lost sheep. John 10:11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus died for that lost sheep. You Pharisees and scribes are looking down your bony noses and pointing your skinny Pharisaical fingers at the sinner and saying, oh, you're a sinner and we're righteous. Jesus, contrary to your attitude, he died for that lost sheep, that tax gatherer, that sinner. John 10:14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. That shows that Jesus knows who he came comes after and we know jesus when after he makes himself known to us we know him and there's not anything that can tear us away from him not even the sickening american antichrist culture today can tear us away from him now john gill the calvinist makes a point that the sheep was put on the shepherd's shoulders and then the shepherd carried him home that shows that the sheep was pretty his will was not operating very strongly there when jesus grabbed him and saved him from his lost condition which, of course, illustrates the Calvinist doctrine of irresistible grace, which says that God initiates our salvation. We merely respond to it. We do not seek him first. He seeks us first. And here the shepherd goes out, puts the sheep on his shoulder, and now the sheep doesn't fight. He says, oh, thank you, shepherd, you saved me. The sheep responds of its own free will, but it's the shepherd who does the work first. We now move to Luke 15, 8. 
we switch to another parable. This, the first parable was the parable of the lost sheep. This parable, the second parable, is the parable of the lost coins. Or what woman, Jesus continues, who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp? Sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. Now the woman stands for Jesus or God. She loses one coin. The lost coin refers to those sinful Jews who were not of the self-righteous Pharisees party. And God, the woman, lights a lamp, sweeps the house and searches carefully until she finds that coin. The point is, is that Jesus came down here to seek and save what's lost. And you Pharisees aren't seeking and saving which was lost. And I am. Now, in the eastern houses back then, they were dark because they didn't have windows and they were dirty. I should say dirty. They had dirt floors. No windows and dirt floor. That can make it hard to find a coin rolling around, as the NIV Study Bible points out. But nonetheless, the owner of the house, the woman, will search carefully. And this parable goes to show that God will pull out no stops in his efforts to find the lost sinner. And also, John Gill, the Calvinist, points out, a coin does not roll its way to the woman. The coin lies there lost in the dirt, in the darkness. And then the woman finds it, shines a light on it, does not light a lamp. And the idea is that the coin was lost and Jesus found the coin. But the initiator, the initiator of the salvation process is Jesus, is the woman, not the coin. Jesus, not the sinner. The coin does not provide the light by which he is saved, as John Gill says. We now go to verses 9 through 10 of Luke 15. When she finds it, the woman of the house finds the lost coin. She calls her women, friends, and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angel over one sinner who repents. Now here we have Jesus once again rebuking the attitude of the Pharisees and the scribes who could see no joy in a sinner repenting. And Jesus is saying, yes, hey, once something is lost is found, there is joy in heaven. So quit hating the sinner and be happy when he repents. This parable is relatively easy to interpret. This idea of joy is the same idea that's expressed in the parable of the 99 sheep. Remember when the lost sheep was found that there was joy in heaven. Everybody repented. Excuse me. Everybody rejoiced when the sheep was brought back. Likewise, there's joy in the presence of God's angels here when the coin is found. The joy is in heaven in the parable of the lost sheep, verse 7, joy in heaven. And here in the parable of the lost coins, joy in heaven. So there might not be joy on earth where the Pharisees are ruling things, but by golly in heaven there is when the sinners come home. Now, it says that there is joy in the presence of God's angels. Joy on the part of whom? God and Jesus rejoicing together with the angels, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. I don't know you, about you, but if you ever see somebody get saved, it, it's, it really is a good day. You just feel really great about it. Luke 15, verses 11 through 16. He also said, and now Jesus here is switching to the parable of the lost son, or as we more commonly know it, the prodigal son. So we've, done, we've talked about lost sheep, lost coin, and now it's the lost son. Jesus said, quote, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his field from the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. Now, 
Let's talk about some legal background here about this distributing of, of a father's estate. Now, the NIV study Bible says to give a share of an inheritance before death was unusual back then. And sometimes, however, someone might give the property, uh, uh, an older man with his estate might give the property to a son and retain the income from the property, according to the NIV study Bible. But Adam Clark, who knows just about everything, a polymath, says it was common for young sons to demand the property in advance. Well, I don't know how you reconcile that. I don't know who's right. And I'm not a scholar in ancient Near Eastern legal practices to, to know. But let me just tell you what Clark says. He doesn't say anything about the distinction between income and property that, that a man might give away the property, the, the, the bulk of the, the excuse me, the uh, estate itself, and then retain the income on it. But Clark says it was the son's legal right to demand his share of the state early. Here's the quote from Clark. It has been an immemorial custom in the East for sons to demand and receive their portion of the inheritance during their father's lifetime. And the parent, however aware, however aware of the dissipated inclinations of the child, could not legally refuse to comply with the application. The point of this provision was to protect sons from dissolute fathers. If a son saw his father squandering the state, he could demand an early dis distribution of the assets to keep the asset from being to keep the estate from being squandered. So the father had to accede to the demand. He couldn't sue the son and say, "No, I'm not going to give you your estate." He had to go ahead and give him the estate, and that would prove that the father's character was irreproachable. Now, if it was found out that the sons had bad character and the son had screwed the father by demanding the estate earlier so he could squander it, then the son was subject to a legal fine. Well, that sounds very interesting. So this to deal with the question of why would a father give his estate out early before he died, I used to wonder about that. But I think that answers it is that it was a legal, there were, there were legal provisions for that to be done if the son demanded it. Well, the father didn't give any complaints. He just said, here it is. He gave the money, gave the estate away. Now, the son's motive, it was very clear here in verse 13, he says, a few days later, not many days later, he gathered together all he had and traveled. So in other words, if you get it in a state and then you three days later you head out to get away from your father, that shows right there. The son was trying to rip his father off and get away from him, didn't want to have anything to do with it. Well, who do these people stand for? Well, the man who had the estate is God the father. And the prodigal son, the lost son who's getting ready to leave his father and go to a distant country, they represent the sinners and the tax collectors that were there present. So remember, there's two groups, scribes and Pharisees, sinners and tax collectors. Now, the younger son is the stands for the sinners and tax collectors. The older son stands for the scribes and the Pharisees, the one that got ticked off when the younger son came back, which we'll look at in just a minute. Now, notice when he went to the distant land, it was a distant land because he wanted to get a long, long way from his father. He squandered his estate in foolish living. That's the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. The NIV translation is wild living, and the KGV is riotous living. So he squandered his estate in wild and riotous living. I like those translations a little bit better. In fact, his the oldest sons and when he came back, when the younger son came back and the older sons complained to the father, the older son says he was out there wasting his living with prostitutes, which he might have been doing. In fact, I think he was doing it. Of course, the older son might have been biased in his estimation of the moral character of the younger son. We don't know, but I suspect that's what he was doing. All right, so he's out there blowing, blowing the, the inheritance, which is, of course, a symbol of blowing the spiritual inheritance that one has with one's heavenly father. 
This is the tax. This is the tax gatherers and sinners who's being who are being represented here. All right. Then when the famine hit, as you know, when you're out of money, which always happens with people who squander money, he didn't have anything to eat, so he went to eat work for somebody who made him eat from carob pods. The pigs were eating. Now carob pod. That's the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. Most of the translations just say pods and leave it at that. So somehow the Holman Christian Study Bible translators deduced from the Greek that it was carob pods. I don't know how they did that, but I did look up a picture on the Internet, which I can't show you. Each carob pod is brown in color, and it's long, about the shape of a butter bean pod, and uh, they're ugly, nasty looking, because they look like dirt because they're brown. Kind of a substitute for chocolate, actually. I think some people used to use carob chip milkshakes. I remember years ago eating that, drinking that stuff. But at any rate, that's bad enough. But what was really bad is the prodigal son, the lost son, was eating with pigs. Now, you know, you're a good Jew. Of course, he wasn't a good Jew, but he was Jewish. You can't even eat a pig, but to eat with pigs? Now, that's really, really, really degraded. The ultimate indignity for a Jew, as the NIV Study Bible and Adam Clark say... Of course, because pigs were unclean according to the Mosaic law. Here's what Gill says about it. Starving amongst pigs describes the ultimate degradation of the sinner apart from God. Yes, it does. By the way, I say God the Father, the, the, the man who distributed his inheritance early was, stood for God the Father. It could refer to Jesus, too. I don't know why. I just think it stands for God the Father. All right, let's go to Luke 15, verses 17 through 19. When he came to his senses, that's the lost son who's eating it in the pig pen, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, and I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. Now, some people, according to John Gill, say that the hired hands refers to the scribes and the Pharisees. I don't think so, because it's the older sons who refer to the to the scribes and the Pharisees. So I don't think, I think this is one of these incidental details of a parable that you don't need to interpret. When he says, I've sinned against heaven, that's a Hebrewism. Ace ton uranon. Some say it should be translated even unto heaven. I've sinned even unto heaven, whatever. But Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that it is a Hebrewism for, quote, I have sinned exceedingly beyond all description. In other words, I have screwed up big time here. And so we see from that expression that he's, his confession, it seems to be at least, and I'm sure it was, heartfelt, sincere, and genuine. He was not sorry for the bad consequences only. He was sorry from a moral point of view, not from a pragmatic point of view. Luke 15, verses 20 through 21. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son, that's the lost son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And this is the point of the parable, how God is compassionate towards sinners. He ran, the father ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now you notice that the father, he didn't say, well, look at you. You squandered your inheritance. You're living with pigs. You're eating with pigs. You screw up. No, he noticed the forgiveness in the guy's heart. And he recognized that forgiveness and repentance. And he responded with compassion. This is ought to be obvious that we should do this. But unfortunately, that's not the way human beings are a lot of times. We... We forget that sin can be forgiven. Now, if the, the now if the parables, if the lost son had come back and had not confessed his sins and said, "Oh, you're so, still a jerk, father," well, the father wouldn't have reacted the same way. But that's not the way the prodigal son came back. He came back full of penitence. 
Here's a textual note here. Verse 21, the NIV adds a phrase. Make me like one of your hired men. Let me read it together. It would be like this. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Well, each home of Christian study Bible believes off that last part. So does the NIV. It doesn't matter. It, if, if the variant is right there, make me like one of your hired men. The idea is he's saying, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Total humility. Verses 22 through 24 of Luke 15. But the father told his slaves, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. Remember now this lost son stands for these nasty tax collectors and sinners that were sitting there at the table with Jesus and the Pharisees. Or maybe not at the table, but were together there with, with the Pharisees. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, why did the father give the son a robe and sandals and a finger? Well, those were symbols of acceptance into the father's house. For example, in Genesis 41 and 42, Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him with fine linen garments, and placed a gold chain around his neck. So here, there you have the ring and the clothes offered to Joseph to show that Joseph was in the household of Pharaoh. This is a common way to do things in the ancient Near East. Zechariah 3, 4. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, See, I have removed your guilt from you. He's talking to Joshua, the high priest. Take off your filthy clothes, Joshua, and I will clothe you with splendid robes. So fancy clothes back then were a symbol of righteousness and cleanliness, and you're, you're okay. You're, you're, you're accepted now. Now the other thing that the prodigal son got, the lost son got, was sandals for his feet. Slaves went barefoot. Only sons wore sandals. So he was accepted back, not as a slave, not as a hired hand, but as a son, because he was wearing sandals. And I've studied Bible on Jameson Fawcett and Brown, point that out. Now, as far as a calf, typically when they had a cow, cows were expensive. Ooh, I can think of how good that steak tasted. And they had a big feast, roasted on the fire. They were sacrificed on special occasions only. According to the NIV study Bible, this was a special occasion. Now, fattened calf is a symbol there. A Jew would know that stands for a special, special, special banquet. Luke 15, verses 25 through 28. Now, his older son was in the field. The older son, of course, refers to the Pharisees. I've been saying older sons. Actually, there's only one, one older son. Now, his older son was in the field, so as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has sent because he has him back safe and sound. Then he, that's the older son, became angry and didn't want to go in, so his father came out and pleaded with him. Well, this is easy to interpret. The older son was the Pharisees and the scribes, not happy that these sinners are getting into the kingdom. And, and remember, these sinners were Jewish sinners. We still hadn't got around to the Gentiles coming in. The Jews a long time had a problem with that. The older son really didn't have anything to be angry about. He had already received his inheritance. And this is something I didn't point out Luke in verse 12 and Luke 15 in our present chapter. When the younger of the, when the younger son asked for his assets to be distributed, the father distributed the assets to the younger son and also to the older son. Let me read that. Verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them plural, them. So the older son had already got his inheritance. So what's he griping about? 
This is the Pharisees. They had all the articles God given to them. They screwed it up. They added traditions. They did all kind of terrible things. They had no right to complain because God gave them everything they needed for salvation, and they screwed it up. And they had horrible attitudes, and they were not compassionate for people who were repentant of their sins. Luke 15, verses 29 through 30. But he replied to his father, Look, this is the older son now, the scribes and the Pharisees, represented by the older son. He replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. There's a contrast here between a young goat and a fattened calf. <laughs> the older son saying, I didn't even get a young goat. Those are cheap. Cheaper than a fattened calf, as the NIV Study Bible points out. I didn't even get a cheap feast. But, I, but this prostitute-loving younger son of yours, he got a fattened calf. Is that the way to reward your faithful older son who has been slaving many years for you? Now, notice the Pharisees have been slaving many years for the father. That's right. They've been slaving by adding traditions to the law that nobody could keep, putting burdens on people and driving people to spiritual death and distraction. That's what they've been doing. They've been slaving making themselves proud and arrogant, taking the honorable seats at the banquets and in the synagogues and receiving the greetings of people in the marketplace. Yeah, they've been slaving all right. They've been slaving completely ruining the beautiful religion that God had given the Jews. They ruined it. Notice that when you slave for your father, you're not working for him out of your heart. And to make an application here, any Christian who slays for his father, oh, God, I... I went to church every week and on Wednesday night too and on Sunday night too and I read my Bible every day and I memorized 100 verses a week and, and I witnessed to 5,000 people every week and, and, and I went down my prayer list and prayed for everybody. I gave a whole bunch of money to the church building program and I'm miserable. I'm working for you and slaving for you. That's what legalism does for you. They ain't nothing worse. Nothing. Nothing worse than legalism. When you work for your father, it ought to be a joyous thing to do. It, you ought to feel good that you put in a good day's work for your father who loves you and you love him. Big difference between slaving many years for the father. But that's what this Pharisee said. Notice that the older son didn't call him my brother. He says, this son of yours. But when this son of yours came, he didn't say, but when my younger brother came, he had lost all brotherly affection for that younger brother. Even as the scribes and Pharisees had lost any affection that they ever had any for the tax collectors and sinners. Luke 15, 31 and 32, and we'll finish it up. Son, he, the father, said to him, to the older son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Remember that God had given everything the Pharisees needed for life in God, for believing in like Abraham and having it imputed to them for righteousness. He had done all that, but they screwed it up. But they had it. Verse 32, but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So Jesus finishes up with the three parables. In every one, there's celebration and rejoicing when a son repents. And that's the main theme that ties these things together. In every one, the rejoicing is contrasted with the pharisaical attitude of hating the sinner rather than rejoicing when the sinner is forgiven. The NIV Study Bible says that this parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, might be better called, quote, the father's love rather than the prodigal son. And that's another thing we need to emphasize. In all three parables, not only is there rejoicing when the, guy, when the sinner comes back, but the reason that he comes back is because of the father's great compassion. Compassion shines in all three of these parables. Now, this idea of the brother being dead and coming back into the feast and being alive again, the younger brother, 
that fits in pretty good with the scriptures. Beautiful picture of Christian conversion, says the NIV Study Bible. Yes, it is. Coming alive when you were dead. Romans 6.13. And do not offer any parts of it, of your body, to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, you have been resurrected. And that's the first resurrection, as Romans, as uh, uh, Revelation 20 puts it. The first resurrection, you've been risen from the dead. You're alive from the dead. Offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourself to God as weapons for righteousness. Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your transgressions trespasses and sins you were dead but you're alive now of course Ephesians 2 5 God made us alive with the Messiah even though we were dead in trespasses you are saved by grace so the idea of being dead and coming to life that's in the Bible just like it's like it's mentioned in the parable of the lost son the prodigal son the younger brother is dead and he's alive again he was lost and is found that's why we call sinners lost by the way I guess it comes from this parable is he lost or is he saved well, maybe not just this parable. Here's some other scriptures where lost is. Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Matthew 10.6, Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They're lost. Gather them in. Matthew 18.11, For the Son of Man has come to save the lost. We were lost, but now we have been found because of the inexhaustible compassion of God our Father and of Jesus His Son who came to die for our sins and resurrect us from our sins. The fundamental core of the gospel right there ladies and gentlemen we have finished luke chapter 15 we listened to jesus teach us about being lost and found in three parables in the next chapter luke 16 we'll discuss three parables maybe not all in one audio three parables of concerning stewardship the parable of the unjust steward the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and the parable of the unprofitable servants. I hope you stay tuned for those audios, and I hope you enjoyed this one. 